Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service today. We come to our prayer of approach, and I want to ask you to make this a kind of responsive prayer. Um, I'm going to make various petitions, and once I've made them, I will use these words, meet with us afresh this morning. You'll hear me um, clearing my throat to say meet, and I hope you'll all join the petition, meet with us afresh this morning as we go on into the Lord's Prayer. Now let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, we are here to worship you now. Meet with us afresh this morning. We come to reflect on your greatness, your otherness, your righteousness, and your holiness. Meet with us afresh this morning. We come to praise you for your faithfulness, your goodness, your kindness, and your forgiveness. Meet with us afresh this morning. We come through the grace of Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit, recognizing you are our God, our Father, and our Creator. Meet with us afresh this morning. We come to bring ourselves and all we are and do, to bring our loved ones all they mean to us and to others, to bring our fellowship in all its variety and richness, and to bring to you our world with all its joy and sorrow. Meet with us afresh this morning. Almighty and everlasting God, we come to speak, to listen, to seek, and to find. Meet with us afresh this morning and fill us with the knowledge of your presence. And so help us to walk each day in the light of your love through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The reading is from Genesis chapter 28. Um, I'm reading from the Good News Version. Isaac called Jacob, greeted him, and said to him, Don't marry a Canaanite girl. Go instead to Mesopotamia, to the home of your grandfather, Bethel, and marry one of the girls there, one of your uncle Laban's daughters. May Almighty God bless your marriage and give you many children, so that you may become the father of many nations. May he bless you and your descendants as he blessed Abraham. And may you take possession of this land in which you have lived and which God gave to Abraham. Isaac sent Jacob away to Mesopotamia to Laban, uh, sorry, who was the son of Bethel and Danamine and the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau learnt that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Mesopotamia to find a wife. He also learnt that when Isaac blessed him, he commanded him not to marry a Canaanite woman. 
he found out that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Mesopotamia. Esau then understood that his father Isaac did not approve of a Canaanite woman. So he went to Ishmael, son of Abraham, and married his daughter Mahalath, who was the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and started towards Haran. At sunset he came to a holy place and camped there. He lay down to sleep, resting his head on a stone. He dreamt he saw a stairway reaching from earth to heaven, with angels going up and coming down on it. And there was the Lord standing beside him. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac, he said. I will give you and to your descendants this land on which you are lying. They will be as numerous as the specks of dust on the earth. They will extend their territory in all directions. And through you and your descendants, I will bless all the nations. Remember, I will be with you and protect you, protect you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised you. Jacob woke up and said, The Lord is here. He is in this place. And I didn't know. He was afraid and said, What a terrifying place this is. It must be the house of God. It must be the gate that opens into heaven. Jacob got up early next morning, took the stone that was under his head and set it up as a memorial. Then he poured olive oil onto onto it to dedicate it to God. He named the place Bethel, the town which had once been known as Luz. Then Jacob made a vow to the Lord. If you will be with me and protect me on the journey I'm making and give me food and clothing, and if in return and if I return safe, safely to my father's home, then you will be my God. This memorial stone which I have set up will be the place where you are worshipped, and I will give you a tenth of everything you give me. And now our prayers of intercession. And again we have a response at the end of various paragraphs. The cue will be, Lord, in your mercy. And the response is, hear our prayer. We pray today for those who are carrying heavy burdens. Let's pray. Great and gracious God, we pray for all those in life who carry heavy loads and long for rest. We pray for people weighed down by remorse, carrying the burden of guilt, those who have made mistakes and those who have said foolish things, who have acted unthinkingly and who feel they can never find pardon. We ask you to assure them your constant forgiveness is open to all. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for those folks who are weighed down by a sense that life has lost its meaning, carrying with them a burden of despair, and those who drift aimlessly through each day, who look toward the future with a sense of weariness, who feel trapped in the rut from which there is no escape, assure them that you have a purpose for everyone. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for those who are weighed down by injustice 
and those who carry with them the burden of helplessness, and the poor, and the sick, and the homeless, the oppressed, the persecuted, and the wrongly imprisoned, all who have been deprived of basic human rights, who feel powerless to do anything about it, assure them that you are able to transform things, however hopeless they may seem. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And Lord, we pray too for those weighed down by advancing years, carrying with them the burden of age, those who wrestle with declining help, confused by the pace of change, left feeling lonely and overlooked and unloved, or those who grieve for old friends who have passed away. Assure them that your word and your love endure forever. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Great and gracious God, bring hope, bring joy, bring peace. Bring trust and bring renewal of life to all who struggle under heavy loads. May they find in Christ the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. And may they find rest for their souls in him. Lord, in your mercy, for we ask these things together and unitedly in Jesus' name. Amen. I want this morning to speak to you about when God becomes real, and I think it's best to try and focus our thoughts on the little verses between 11 and 13 of Genesis 28. At sunset, he came to a holy place and camped there. He lay down to sleep, resting his head on a stone. He dreamed that he saw a stairway reaching from earth to heaven with angels going up and down on it. And there was the Lord standing beside him. Now the story of Jacob's vision at Bethel is one of the best known and best loved stories in the entire Bible. It's always a favorite with the children. They love the illustration of it, the sleeping form of the young man, the little pile of stones that serve for his pillow, the ladder stretching from earth to heaven, and the angels ascending and descending on it. And we older people, we love this story too. We can never hear it read without a certain sense of wistfulness coming over us. For the more experience of life that we have, the more we long for some such experience as Jacob knew. The more we long to make sure of God and his unfailing care as Jacob did. The more we long from the light of heaven to illuminate the dull commonplace of daily routine. But the older we get the more we realize the truth of Emil's remark, there is one thing needful, to possess God. Without that, the taste is apt to go from things, and life becomes lonely and empty. Well, the experience which came to Jacob at Bethel, the experience which made him so 
tremendously aware that God was in that place where he lay, seemed to be the actual gate of heaven. And that kind of experience comes only as we are prepared for it. It may not happen suddenly. It may seem to happen quite suddenly, but it does not. And so in the sermon, I want to show you what it was in Jacob's particular condition, which made made it possible for this vision in the hope that some of us, by ordering our lives accordingly, may be led closer to God. To begin with, I draw your attention to the fact that Jacob at Bethel was in the right place at the right time for a vital experience of God. He was, you remember, in the wilderness, and he was alone. And it was toward the end of the day. I don't want to dwell on this fact, save to remark that it is often when the sun is setting and the night is closing in that we grow more sensitive to spiritual things. The gathering darkness seems to hush our spirits and set them yearning for something beyond the things of earth. You remember Emily Bronte's lines, He comes with western winds, with evenings wandering stars, with that clear dust that brings the thickest stars. Winds take a pensive tone, and and stars a tender fire, and visions rise and change that kill me with desire. All of us, I suspect, can remember some evening by the sea, or among the hills, when the deeps seemed to open up within us, and all we wanted to do was to kneel and pray. And it's certainly at night time when we find it easiest to speak about God and the things of the soul. And it was by night that Nicodemus had his memorable talk with Jesus. And it's not the time of vision I want to stress but rather the place. Jacob at Bethel was in the wilderness, far from the homes of men, far away from the noise of towns, far from the cries of the streets, and he was there alone. This is always the first requirement of people who would find God. They make time to be alone, and they make time to be still. And this is just what today so many people refuse to do. So many seem to be unable to be still and to enjoy their own company. Some seem to have lost the art of being alone. Always they must feel there are people about them. Positive discomfort seems to wrap them up like a blanket when they're left alone. And the result is this. They hear no heavenly voices. Oh, your voices, said the Dauphin to Joan of Arc in Shaw's play, St. Joan. Why don't the voices come to me? I'm the king, not you. And Joan replies, they do come to you but you don't hear them. You've not sat in the field at evening 
listening for them. And when the Angelus rings, you cross yourself and have done with it. But if you prayed from your heart and listened to the thrilling of the bells in the air after they'd stopped ringing, you would hear the voices as I do. And Baron von Hugel wrote to his niece, I want to prepare you to organize you for life, for illness, crisis and death. Live all you can, as full and complete a life as you can find. Do as much as you can for others. Read, work, enjoy, love and help as many souls. Do all this. Yes, but remember, be alone. Be remote. Be away from the world. Be desolate. Then you will be near God. If Jacob's experience of God is to be ours, the first rule to be observed then is that we frequent the solitary place. And we can do that by making time each day, perhaps in our own room, perhaps by slipping into a church, perhaps through a morning or evening walk to be quiet, to be still and to listen. Cooped up in the Antarctic, Dr. Edward Wilson kept alive his sense of God by climbing each day to the crow's nest on the ship which was encased in ice and being alone and listening. Jacob at Bethel was in the right place for an experience with God, but he was also lying on the right kind of pillow. For for his pillow, you remember, he had nothing but stones gathered from the bleak hillside. Yet, strange as it may seem, that is always the kind of pillow that has induced men's most profound experiences. It's true to say that in all the visions which we have on record, those who've been helped have been visited when they had little more than a rough stone on which to lay their head. Thomas Carlyle insisted that all true thought and all deep insight are the daughters of pain and are born, born out of the black whirlwind. And that's sober truth. He wrote these words in his essay on Dante. And they are in the nature of a comment on Dante's whole life. Dante dreamed his immortal dream when he had little more than a stone for his pillow. He was an exile from home and country. He was wandering from place to place and from patron to patron, proving how hard is the path. And if we come nearer to our own day, we think of the one who saw Jacob's ladder pitched between heaven and Charing Cross and Christ walking on the water, not of Gennesaret, but the Thames. When did Francis Thompson see his vision? When he was selling matches in the strand for a living and sleeping under the Thames bridges at night. It would seem then that another requirement for a vision of God is a certain hardness in one's pillow. When a pillow becomes too soft, people become too comfortable and the vision seems to fade. It is, not, is it not the case that many people who experience an increase in material comfort, have a corresponding decrease in their sensitiveness to the spiritual world. 
Men and women are at their best when they're up against it. Not long before he died, Arnold Bennett was irritated by the disparaging reviews which some of the younger literary critics were giving his later books. He challenged some of his critics to state clearly the nature of their complaint against them. And one of them said, Our complaint against you, Arnold Bennett, is that you've grown too rich. When you were poor and struggling, then you felt deeply and saw truly. But now that success has come your way, your vision has become blurred and your books shallow and trivial. I hate luxury, said Goethe. It destroys the imagination. It destroys the soul too. A wise man then who would keep his hold on God will always see to it no matter what the outward circumstances there will always be a certain austerity in his daily living. We'll always see to it that he has in hand some some task that stretches his powers. We'll always see to it, in other words, that somewhere in his pillow there's a piece of hard stone. Jacob at Bethel was in the right place for an experience of God. He was lying on the right kind of pillow. And he was there in what I can only describe as the right mood. Let's recall just why he came to that hillside. He had a day or two before deceived his father Isaac, disguising himself as his elder brother Esau, and his half-blind father had been taken in by the disguise and given to Jacob the inheritance which was really his brother's. As a result, Esau had sought to slay him, and Jacob had been compelled to flee for his life and set off for another land. It was the first night of that journey to the new land that brought him to Bethel, his hard pillow, and the dream that he dreamed. It's not difficult to imagine that as he tried to settle himself to sleep, Conscience beginning to stir. Difficulties in warding off the deep sense of shame for the shabby trick he'd played. More and more he becomes conscious of that awful sense of loneliness, of separation from father and family and home and God. It would be only night roundabout, and it was a dark night that settled on his soul. When the deeps had been opened up to Jacob's nature, when life brought him face to face with ultimate things, and the perilousness of life, and the deceitfulness of the human heart, and the inexorableness of the moral law, it was then, when Jacob was in that kind of mood, that God spoke. Is there not here another reason why the presence of God is so unreal to many today? Many never seem to cultivate the deep moods of the soul. They deal on the surface of things. They rush from pleasure to pleasure, from pleasure to sleep, from sleep to work again, and never trouble the deeps within. 
Too many people today complain J.B. Praisley in his reign in Gush Hill give themselves up to what he calls a car and wireless life. Now, there's nothing wrong with cars or wireless sets, but he says, I am glad not to be without either of them myself, but a life that hardly moves away from a schoolboy fussing with such things is obviously lacking in fullness and depth. Three quarters of the rich channels of communication in the mind are closed up. The whole of the universe shriveled. From morn, to mid, from, from morn to midnight all day through I laugh and play as others do. I sin and chatter just the same as others with a different name. And all year along upon the stage I dance and tremble and do rage so vehemently I scarcely see the inner and eternal me. I have a temple I do not visit, a heart I have forgot, a self I have never met. This is the condition of many people today, and the consequence is that they are seldom aware of God. For he who would be aware of God must cultivate what I can only call the deep mood, the mood in which we come, become conscious of the bigness and the wonder of the mystery of things. And when we try to do this in so many ways by reading big books, seeing big plays, listening to great music, but most of all Sunday by Sunday, gathering for worship and meditation. Jacob at Bethel, being in the right place, lying on the right kind of pillow, and being in the right mood, found that the heavens opened to him, and God spoke. And we, when we take time to be alone, maintain in all our living a certain hardness, and take pains to keep alive a sense of life's mystery and bigness, God will become real to us. Then our, all our loneliness will be gone. And in George Fox's quaint phrase, the whole of the universe will give out a new sense. Before we pass on from this story, it would be worthwhile just to notice what Jacob did after his vision was ended. For one great secret in the, in the growth of character is the prolonging of the quickening power of right ideas, of perpetuating just and inspiring impressions. And both of the things that he did were calculated to make Bethel a permanent, experience, a permanent factor in his life. First of all, he marked the place of the vision. He took a stone that had helped serve as his pillow and set it up as a permanent memorial. Why? Because he knew the vision was likely to fade in the light of common day. And he knew the hour would come when he would wonder if he really had met with God. Time would come when he'd be tempted to think that all that happened to him had just been a result of his own imaginings. So he marked the place in order that in after years he might go back and live there again. Live it all over again. It's an awful wise rule in life to mark the place of our big experience 
and occasionally, even if only in imagination, to return and live through the experience again. Samuel Hadley was the founder of the great Water Street Mission in New York. He found God one April 23rd in a lonely prison cell. And every year afterwards, on that day, he got permission from the prison authorities to make a pilgrimage to the same cell and to live through that life-changing experience again. And so he helped to keep vivid his sense of God. And he remained true to the end. Yes, mark your Bethels and occasionally return. And the other thing Jacob did was to make a vow. He pledged himself, he pledged himself ever afterwards to give one-tenth of his possessions to God. And that is what we should always do when God has drawn near our souls. Do something practical as a consequence. If we do not, if we just enjoy the vision, we decrease our capacity to have further visions. Visions obeyed remain visions, the master lights of our seeing. But disobeyed, they turn into illusions. Lord, asked Paul, after his first vision, what will you have me to do? And so when we feel the hand of God upon us and the deeps open up within, when we read a book or hear music that sets our spirits aflame, when in church or at communion we feel our hearts begin to burn within us, then and there we should decide to do something definite as a consequence, something kind to somebody Something hard we've been shirking. Remember, as Dr. Hutton once said, nothing does us good unless it makes us good. And nothing makes us good unless it makes us good for something or good to somebody. Amen. May God bless his word. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his Father's glory with exceeding great joy. To the only wise God our Saviour be glory and majesty, dominion and authority, now and through endless ages evermore.